குருபியோ நம்ம குட் ஆஃப்டர்நூன் மை நேம் இஸ் ஹரிகிரண் ஐம் ஃபவுண்டர் ஆஃப் இண்டிக் அகாடமி அண்ட் ஐம் ஹியர் வித் டாக்டர் நாகராஜ் பாட்டூரி ஹூ இஸ் அ டெரெக்டர் ஆஃப் இன்டர் குருகுலா யூனிவர்சிட்டி சென்டர் அட் இண்டிக் அகாடமி ஓவர் த நெக்ஸ்ட் ஒன் அவர் வி வில் பி டாக்கிங் அபவுட் Hindu folk response to epidemics in general and certain instances and certain specific um, deities uh, more specifically in uh, in the in, in the south of uh, south of india we are proposing to do a sort of a series of such conversations um uh, focused on folk traditions hindu folk traditions and their culture and uh, this would be the first such uh, conversation good afternoon dr nagraj good how afternoon. are you yeah uh, in this corona conditions uh, we are trying to keep safe and uh, this conversation also uh, can be focused on the uh, response of the hindu folk traditions corona like conditions before that can i just uh, briefly tell our uh, audience a bit of your background and uh, we'll start with uh, dr nagraj paturi trained in sanskrit and advaita vedanta by his hyper polyglot polyglot polymath and spiritually accomplished late shri paturi sitaramanj jirilkaru he seriously committed to the transmission of vedic sciences to the present generation he designed a very big number of courses of contemporary applications of vedic sciences and has successfully has been successfully teaching them and getting them taught presently he is director of intergurukula university center for indic, indic knowledge systems of indic academy he is earlier he was earlier at flame school of communication and of flame school of liberal education he was also a former visiting university professor at university of chicago and in his phd he has developed an indic model of myth myth criticism of literature he brought out vakya padyam as a theoretical foundation of ashtadhyayi today we are seeking to discuss what would be the hindu folk traditions traditional response to epidemics in general so dr nagraj garu tell us how you got interested in 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 this uh, folk traditions what has been your background specifically with respect to folk traditions yeah thank you uh, harikiran garu i worked uh, at the university of hyderabad for uh, center for folk culture studies uh for a very long time for a few decades and before getting into that uh, uh academic uh, teaching research job at the university of hyderabad i was uh, uh into folklore research folk cultural research uh right from 1987 uh because i chose uh, a particular uh myth interpretation mythological story interpretation model uh drawing from one princeton university professor called northrop frye uh from his book called anatomy of criticism in which he uh, creates a model of analysis of mythological stories and mythological literature drawing from anthropology psychoanalysis philosophy literary criticism and a multidisciplinary model so i thought uh, i should particularly train myself uh, in the folklore research because i already have a very strong background in on the vedic side uh, on the sanskrit side on the literature side on the classical side but i should uh, get the compensation of my training in on the folklore side also folk cultural side also uh for that reason i got into uh, folklore research i started with working on the shepherd cultures of uh, rayalaseema in karnataka where they have a priestly community called goravas 
and then I started working on the transvestites uh, who get dedicated to a folk goddess called Yallamma, who has another uh, related form called Udigamma. And uh, these uh, that uh, took me into LGBT research, uh, folk side of LGBT research. And then um, uh, this brought me into a huge world of village goddesses, mother goddesses and uh, entire folklore aspects i then went into tapvans research uh, mystic yogis on the folk side and whatnot uh, for around 35 years uh, now i have been into uh, multiple aspects of uh, folklore particularly of the south uh, when my american teachers uh, trained me in this field they used to advise that to be able to understand a culture, it is always better to go there as an outsider so that you would be uh, taking away all your uh, prejudices as an insider. Uh, for that purpose, I started my research in Kerala uh, because matrilineal family system there is an outsider system for me. So I thought by doing that, I can. And that took me to Keralite the folklore, uh, Peyam culture there, all the Yakshini culture, the Manakshasa culture, the, all the Keralite folklore research I did. And then uh, I have a great uh, fascination and love for Tamil temple culture and all that. So I spent a lot of time on the Tamil, Tamil Nadu side. As a Telugu person, I have worked on uh, all the four regions of uh, the Telugu land, uh, the uh, Kalinga, the eastern side, and the uh, Krishna Godavari uh, side, which is the central part, and the Rayalaseema side, which is the southern part. And particularly in Telangana, where I am currently staying for the last uh, uh, several decades, uh, located at Hyderabad, uh, I did a uh, the maximum part of my work on the Telangana side of Telugu folklore. Uh, and as a bilingual who has uh, both Kannada and Telugu as mother tongues, I worked on Karnataka folklore also. And uh, I, because the cults that I took up, uh, for example, both Yallama cult and the shepherd cults that I took for research cover Maharashtra also, I had to do research on the Maharashtra side also. So, this took me to the whole area of that region and I had to cover folklore research uh, and this I used for my PhD work. Okay. Uh, this. Uh, but before that, can you uh, just uh, broadly uh, tell uh, our viewers what you mean by folk uh, as opposed to, as opposed to what, as opposed to Vedic. So what is the difference between these two terms? Basically, the word uh, folk is a global word. It is not always used in contrast to, say, Vedic. Uh, the contrasting to Vedic is only an Indian problem. Uh, but uh, you have uh, folklore ev everywhere in the world. And uh, these folklore studies uh, started uh, in Europe, in modern Europe. Uh, when the romanticist uh, come nationalist ideology was developing, uh, there was a slogan called England lives in its villages, from where uh, M.K. Gandhi borrows his India lives in its villages. Uh, so people uh, started working on the peasant culture of England and uh, there were uh, archives and museums that were created for the rural and uh, village peasant cultures of England. And uh, once they started working on that uh, and they came to rule India, uh, through the university academics and by observing the British officials, Indians started getting interested in the topic of folklore. And uh, because these British officials were uh, working on the Indian folklore as a hobby, their wives also, colonial officials' wives were taking this as a hobby and all that. Uh, many Indian intellectuals started developing fascination for their own folklore 
uh, as part of their imitation of uh, their colonial bosses. Uh, and then the, uh, this word folklore came into uh, popularity. Officials were uh, urban, uh, urban uh, situated officials, and and uh, as opposed to uh, they were not from the villages. I mean, was it such a start? Most of the intellectuals that we know always trace back at least one generation back to a village that they were living in. So for them. Would they consider themselves as folk, or I mean, how how does how did that they don't happen? consider themselves as folk? Actually, by those times, uh, they in fact considered themselves to be completely different from what they considered folk. And the word folk had a pejorative connotation also. It had uh, a looking down attitude also. They considered these peasants as uh, less educated, uh, uneducated, so to say. Uh, and uh, they, there was a kind of romanticization of the looked down upon culture. Uh, so the, the, the words that are used are, these are innocent people, ignorant people, uh, but we are broad-minded enough to uh, take compassion for them, to take interest in them and taking uh, understanding them and all that. But nevertheless, uh, they were uh, modernist in their mindset. Uh, nevertheless, they were evolutionist in their mindset. They were nevertheless Eurocentric in their mindset, Orientalist in their mindset. And uh, they uh, uh, at all these cultures as superstitious cultures, for example, uh, because they were not scientific enough. So they were coming from the paradigm of science that was already emerging at that time. So they were looking at the belief systems of the folk as superstitious systems and all that. So the source of folklore research academically was from two sides. One is from the side of uh, literature, where they were looking at folk literature as opposed to uh, their mainstream elite literature. But there was the other stream coming from anthropology and uh, that cultural anthropology, particularly social anthropology, was in its beginnings was completely Eurocentric and uh, Orientalist in its uh, mindset. So for them, all this folklore, folk culture uh, was uh, a bunch, uh, bunch of uh, superstitions and uh, innocent uh, belief systems and all that. Uh, but there were two different cultures in the society. I mean, uh, one was like. A <coughs> Or was there any overlapping kind of? How, how, how was it? At that time, in the beginning, there was no uh, uh, awareness of uh, intercultural interactions among different streams of culture. They, for example, they did not uh, consider those days. Uh, sorry, which period are we talking about? Uh, is this the colonial period? 19th century, early 19th century. 19th, okay. 19th century and uh, later part of 19th century. Gradually, uh, up to early 20th century, the same attitudes were continuing. And uh, the Indians, uh, Indian intellectuals who were getting interested in uh, folklore out of their uh, imitation of their colonial bosses and uh, the colonial rulers, uh, also were uh, imitating the same attitude, those borrowed attitudes that uh, they, they, they themselves are urban people, they themselves are uh, elite uh, Indians, and they, like their bosses, they are also taking pity on their compassionate towards the rural people. And they started romanticizing the innocence of these uh, folk uh, people uh, uh, out, out of their attitude that, that was broad-mindedness to romanticize. See, I am an educated person, in spite of being educated, I am. Uh, loving the uneducated and all that. But gradually in cultural anthropology, cultural relativism developed. Uh, the insider perspective, emic perspective uh, started dominating and uh, people started emphasizing this uh, uh, opposition to scientists' attitude of uh, looking down upon these cultures as superstitions and all that. And, and a, an approach of understanding these cultures 
uh, empathetically from inside those cultures through methods like participant observation uh, and uh, getting completely involved in uh, the community that you are studying and uh, uh, being part of that culture and all that develop. And uh, uh, coming back to India, uh, it, there was already this uh, uh, linguistic uh, families, uh, language families, Dravidian family, Indo-European family already identified. So then you are, if you're looking at folklore, you're looking at the Dravidian side. So if you're looking at the Vedic side, you're looking at the Indo-European side, so to say the Aryan side, that is the way they were looking at. So folklore research was considered to be the research on the Dravidian side and the research on the Vedic side was looked at as the research on the Aryan side. Um, so broad all, uh, this was all a, a, a colony project, just in terms of the, the lens. Because if you're talking about 19th century... Yeah, uh, it was part of the whole uh, Eurocentric, Orientalist, uh, colonialist uh, political project. There was, uh, all this was happening already as part of that project. Uh, some of them were consciously doing this, some of them were uh, unconsciously getting trapped into the uh, uh, worldview that was already created. And most of the Indian intellectuals were taking pride in being progressive enough to uh, be able to absorb the European uh, perspective. And uh, they started uh, separating the Vedic and the folk. Uh, and they started saying, if uh, you're talking of Yajna and uh, classical temple, you are talking about the Vedic, but uh, you have to be progressive enough to be able to understand uh, the folk side of the culture and all that. But interestingly, what happened is, uh, uh, my observation on the Telugu folklore research side is uh, that the early academic folklore researchers in, on the Telugu side were interestingly all from the Indic background. For example, Professor Biriduraju Ramaraju, who did his first PhD uh, in folklore, uh, was an Indic-oriented uh, person. And uh, gradually, the, his legacy, his students, and then his student, students of students, it all went into a kind of uh, uh, Indic approach only. Uh, so this attitude of India lives in its villages. So uh, uh, we have our roots in the folklore. We have to uh, get our culture from its roots, grassroots. All this attitude from an Indic approach also was there. It was not always. Uh, uh, from a left liberal point of view that folklore research was happening here. Okay. Uh, the, what you largely outlined is during the uh, during the colonial period. What, how was it during the medieval period uh, between these two cultures? How was the interaction? Yeah, right from the ancient period for that matter, uh, uh, through the medieval period, uh, there was uh, uh, the Vedic and the folk cultures uh, were interacting with each other and uh, there was a give and take between the two cultures as it happens with any two cultures that come into interaction with each other and all that though the colonial historians always wanted to project a conflict between these two cultures in the name of aryan dravidian conflict and all that but the reality was uh, that we have enough evidences to show that these two strands of culture vedic and folk were uh, having all kinds of interactions, so probably uh, some kinds of conflict were also part of such interactions, but there was a huge amount of uh, harmonious interaction, mutual influence uh, kind of interaction and all that also. And uh, I borrow the word third culture from the contemporary cross-cultural studies, where they use the word third culture as a mediating culture that emerges uh, between two interacting cultures. Uh, for, uh, as a uh, as a culture through which they can interact with each other. And uh, what we call Puranic, Agamic and classical temple culture emerged as a third culture uh, for an interaction between the pure Vedic culture which uh, Swami Dayananda Saraswati in the 19th century wanted to uh, 
uh, reconstruct and revive uh, out of uh, the existing uh, uh, composite culture, syncretic culture in which the Vedic and folk were already merged into each other. And uh, some people uh, during contemporary times uh, would like to uh, view a pure folk culture without any influence of the Vedic at all. Both these do not exist in reality. There is no pure Vedic or pure folk culture that exists today. And it is impossible to reconstruct and revive such pure forms also. The failure of that experiment is shown in uh, uh, the failure of uh, uh, reconstructing and reviving the pure uh, Vedic culture on the uh, Arya Samaj side. And uh, uh, during the contemporary times also, the reviving, reconstructing and reviving the pure folk culture is also failing. Because in reality, the live uh, and the live stream of the uh, what is being labeled as Hindu culture today is this uh, uh, merger uh, and combination of these two cultures into a single culture. Uh, apart from what is interesting is whenever such uh, mergers or uh, amalgamations happen in other parts of the world, the contributing cultures completely disappear. Whereas in India, interestingly, what happened is the Vedic side, uh, albeit the influence from folk side, and the folk side, albeit from, with, with its influence from the Vedic side, they exist. Apart from this third culture, which is the Agamic temple uh, uh, culture uh, that is being called as Hindu culture. So uh, what we are trying to talk today, uh, the folk culture, folk traditions, they exist today uh, as independent almost of uh, uh, Vedic culture, but you cannot see a pure folk culture without any influence of Vedic culture at all. That's not possible. Okay. Uh, and this uh, situation has been in existence right from the ancient times. Uh, the more ancient or medieval period you go uh, to find any folk culture without any Vedic influence, it is not possible. We are not able to get. Not only in, on the culture or tradition side, uh, if you go to languages also, you cannot find a record of a regional language without Sanskrit influence. Okay. Um, a pure uh, regional language without Sanskrit influence uh, in the recorded history does not exist. Uh, it, we can only imagine and reconstruct uh, a pure stage of those regional languages without Sanskrit influence. Same is about folklore. Uh, same is about folk traditions. We can only imagine a stage of history where the pure Vedic culture and the pure folk culture were existing uh, away from each other without interaction and all that is only uh, an imagined past. In the recorded history, in the documented history, you would always see these influenced by each other, existing side by side and uh, interacting with this mediating culture that has uh, emerged uh, uh, through an amalgamation and uh, mixture of these two cultures uh, forming into what is being called as Hindu culture today. Now, uh, thank you. I mean, that was a very useful uh, primer or uh, background uh, to uh, to get to get a sense of uh, what we are calling as folk culture. Uh, so, uh, in, in terms of folk religious uh, traditions, and especially uh, uh, the traditions. Uh, which respond to uh, crises or uh, which respond to uh, nature's fury or uh, or or uh, or bountifulness. Uh, just broadly, can you just outline those religious uh, folk religious traditions? Yeah, what uh, is interesting as far as this village goddesses culture that we see as part of folk uh, religious traditions. Uh, uh, in India is uh, that some of the names of uh, these village goddesses themselves are the names of epidemics. Uh, oh, I see. The, uh, for example, the most famous uh, uh, 
south indian uh, village goddess name is mariamma that word mari itself is the word for a pedimens and uh, in sanskrit also the word for uh, epidemics is uh, mari we used in arthashastra and many other ancient sources uh, and the, the words like mahamari are also used in sanskrit uh, and uh, uh, that mari amman turns into maremma in telugu uh, and uh, there are many other names like that and if you see other such names you have names like sunkalamma that sunkalu is a symptom of uh, uh, kind of measles and uh, you have uh, names like dekalamma mutyalamma pochamma uh, most of these names the first part of the names name when you remove amma part of it uh, these are the uh, descriptions of the symptoms of those uh, seasonal epidemics uh like measles and chickenpox and uh, other things so uh, but that is not the only uh, kind uh, variety of uh, village goddesses uh, you have village goddesses uh, which are named after sacred groves uh, for example uh, mangoes amma uh, maavullamma uh, oh. it's a mango grove you have tallamma toddy tree grove and uh, there is a, a goddess called tallamma regulamma uh, berry trees uh, uh, grows over there and berry tree grows amma is there and some of the village goddesses are named after the village itself uh, the village name plus amma becomes the name of the uh, village goddess uh, and uh, you have uh, the name of a village goddess uh, after just one tree banyan tree for example marrimanamma uh, like that so though there are many other names also but this uh, these names with uh, names of epidemics become very interesting uh, and what happens is uh, in the course of history all these features of village goddesses get merged into each other for example if though the name of the goddess is the name of the village itself she is also treated as the goddess of the epidemic okay so, Uh, though the name of the goddess is just the name of the uh, grove, sacred grove, she is treated as the goddess of epidemic. And uh, the though the name of the goddess is the name of the epidemic, she is treated as the personification uh, of the mother nature of the village ecosystem itself. So uh, to generalize, we can say that all village goddesses are personifications. uh deity divinizations uh allegories of the village ecosystem the neighborhood ecosystem and uh the epidemic when it occurs or a natural calamity when it occurs is always viewed as the angry side of mother nature that village ecosystem uh and they use uh, uh folk medical vocabulary as we all know in india uh in folk medical vocabulary people use words like heat and cold uh i developed heat i developed cold uh and all that they apply this vocabulary to the person called the mother nature called the village ecosystem called the village goddess and they say now uh, the epidemic has come because the uh, mother goddess developed heat in uh so because Ma, in, in telugu from the, where i come from i mean vedi chesindi antam so vedi chesindi they say vedi chesindi yeah. um heat built up in a, in your body yeah. uh, and chalva cheyali vedi cheste vedi taggali ante if heat is built up in the body it, it, if it has to be alleviated cold has to be created in the body so that cold is created through all kinds of healing solutions one of the major things is food food is offered uh, a cooling food is offered for example onions are considered to be cooling material tamarind is considered to be cooling material uh, curd rice is considered to be cooling material uh, liquor which is made up of a toddy is considered to be cooling material Uh, in maharashtra government officially sells neera uh, 
which comes from uh, the juice of the tadi trees uh, during summer for cooling down the bodies and uh, there is one liquor called kallu that is uh, used in the telugu speaking areas which is considered to be the cooling down uh, folk medical material and this liquor is offered to the goddess to cool her down uh, so what they do is uh, uh, outside you might have observed the village goddess shrines are usually very small the simplest uh, structure for a village goddess temple is no temple at all it is just a neem tree and a navel stone in front of it bodurai is the telugu word they use bodurai can be translated into navel stone it is called bodurai because it, it it was considered to be the central post stone post from which the village architecture was developed all the village settlements uh, the housing structures of the village were uh, sort of built up taking it as the center of the village that is why it is called as navel bodurai and uh, the neem tree which uh, provides shadow to this uh, Godurai and Abel Stone. These two together make the temple. That's all. It's just an open air temple. And if at all a small temple is built, it's a small shell. Uh, sh uh, shrine is a small shrine, and inside uh, the image of the goddess is an anthropomorphic image. There is no human form at all. It is just some shapeless stone or something like that, and. Uh, gradually you see some naive sculpture folk sculpture village sculpture built for this mother goddess in that shrine and what people do is uh, they go uh, settle down outside this shrine and uh, cook food uh, this cooling food they cook rice for example and uh, when the rice uh, is a little cooled down they pour curd down to that and they prepare curd rice and uh, in the coastal part of uh, telugu speaking areas they call it pongallu and uh, in the telangana part they call it bonam and uh, this food is uh, in a battery of pots one over the other they are kept on the head and they are taken to the temple and uh, the they are uh, uh, lower down from the head and the food is poured on to the goddess's image mostly on the navel stone it is uh, poured on to the navel stone in the coastal regions they call it kumbham poyadam uh, in the telangana region they call it rati poyadam uh, and uh, the whole process of offering this food uh, to the goddess uh, is uh, done with a high amount of spiritual uh, uh fervor uh, the the uh, material that is used for cooking the cooking process everything is considered to be mystic and supernatural in its power and the person who holds it uh, is supposed to hold it on the head in a very pure state uh, in a cleanly state the person uh, is supposed to have taken bath fully uh, in a very clean state and then the pot has to be kept on the head and because that belief that there is a supernatural power in what i am offering to the supernatural is there the person holding it on the head gets spiritually possessed that person gets into trance and while walking towards the temple this person in trance even dances to the tunes of the drums and to the uh, smell of the neem leaves that are taken along with it and to the smell of the turmeric powder that is being taken along with it and uh, to the smell of the smokes that come from the dhup sticks that uh, come out of that and the whole fervor is uh, an occult kind of fervor a supernatural uh, ritualistic fervor and uh, through that this food is taken and it is offered on uh, the navel stone uh, and uh, then they get this uh, trance feeling that uh, uh, the goddess is now cooled up the anger is gone uh, the heat in the uh, body of the mother nature of the village ecosystem is now 
it is coming down. It came down because of my offering, because it is curd rice. And they even, even offer things like onions, uh, tamarind juice, and uh, liquor, the, the kallu liquor, uh, all this. And they cut a chicken or a goat also. Uh, actually, even uh, today, the chicken blood is considered to be a cooling down agent uh, in uh, folk medical system, healing system. Uh, so even that is offered and uh, all kinds of what uh, people call animal sacrifice or whatever. Uh, it is called uh, in the Telugu area, the word they use is yatalu. Uh, they do the yatalu uh, with uh, chicken, goats, very rarely with buffaloes uh, in front of the goddess. And uh, it's a huge ritual. Actually, it takes time if you have time. I can describe the whole ritual of this food offering, uh, which goes on for two to three long days. Uh, How is the naming done? How is the name? How, you're, you're saying that some of these goddesses are now named after epidemics. So, uh, so it would be a series of epidemics that happen, and then they, and these uh, ceremonies happen, and then the goddess is named. I mean, how, what's that point in time when they call the goddess after the epidemic? How, how does that? Uh, uh, the uh, typically the uh, my observation is uh, that if uh, a calamity occurs, uh, like for example a fire uh, fire accident in the village, or some earthquake or uh, inundation through floods or something like that happens in a village, uh, there are occurrences such as spirit position. One of the persons of the village gets spirit possessed, and during that spirit position, they uh, uh, give the reason uh, for uh, the calamity. And for example, if measles uh, occurs, and the word for measles in that area is pochalu uh, in that area, uh, the person who gets possessed says that Pochalamma, uh, that is our Pochamma, uh, has uh, attacked our village because uh, we did not keep her cooled down. We did not keep her satisfied. She has attacked our village. Uh, so, and she doesn't say she because in a possessed condition, she speaks in the voice of the goddess itself. So, uh, so the goddess itself says, I'm Pochalamma, I'm Pochamma. Uh, I'm attacking your village because you did not keep me satisfied. And then uh, that word comes out, the name Pocham comes out. So that becomes the name of the goddess. Uh, and they then install a shrine for her uh, because already through their folk medical traditional knowledge, they know that neem tree is a cooling down tree. Uh, so they go to a neem tree and then establish a shrine under that. And they use all the neem leaves and uh, other material from the neem tree and cool her down and offer what she asks for uh, in the voice of the goddess. And uh, usual offerings are already there is a formula for that. It happened in other villages. So it comes from that. So they, uh, they because they know the formula, they do the rituals in the name of the formula. In the, uh, using the formula of uh, the ritual and the new shrine and the new name and the new goddess emerges. Emerges. Fascinating. Fascinating. So just uh, just in terms of the research that you have done specifically uh, in and around Telangana, what are the uh, goddesses or epidemics that you have seen uh, noticed? Just, can you just name a few? As I already told you, the uh, from the names of the uh, goddesses, you can say Pochamma, uh, Muthyalamma, uh, Dekalamma, and uh, all these names are names of epidemics. But uh, ultimately, in reality, what happens is they, uh, every village goddess is everything. Every village goddess is uh, the uh, angry form of the nature in the form of epidemic. 
and also it, she is the personification of the village ecosystem and she is also the personification of the tree uh, she is also the allegory of uh, the uh, village supernatural position uh, everything so though uh, at a certain stage the specific nature of that particular mother goddess is uh, lost she acquires all the features of all the other mother goddesses also uh, so that uh, name uh, association so to look at pochamma as just an epidemic goddess uh, gets lost in the course of history pochamma becomes village goddess as village goddess yes she is the village goddess she is uh, the personification of the neighborhood ecosystem itself you are uh, we have in uh, in in uh, telangana we have this uh, uh, bonalu uh, festival yes uh, how what's the genesis of that yeah i was fortunate to have uh, conducted a research project for 15 years on the bonalu of the twin cities of hyderabad and secunderabad uh during the course we could know that uh, the uh, space bonalu is a pan south india uh, tradition uh, with different names in different parts uh, of south india uh, but in telangana particularly in the twin cities of hyderabad and secunderabad the bonalu of the twin cities of hyderabad and secunderabad is a specific variety of that and this specific variety of uh, fair uh, that happens in the twin cities of hyderabad and secunderabad has a history starting from 1868 during 1868 there was a big play uh, in this area and uh, the narrative the legend goes that uh, during that plague uh, just opposite to the secunderabad uh, railway station where the railway station stands today there is a folk shrine of a folk male god called mallanna and that particular mallanna temple uh, is called pinugula mallanna mallanna of the corpses uh, oh. uh, the legend goes that he was called mallanna of the corpses because uh, the people who died in uh, during the plague were in heaps they, they, their dead bodies were lying in heaps in front of the uh, temple and uh, at that place one of the persons uh, there got possessed and that person in the voice of the goddess said that uh, this plague has come because of the anger of the goddess and uh, you would all be better uh, if you pacify her and very close uh, to this shrine of me uh that is malana is saying malana is saying to, to this very to, uh, very close to my shrine there is my sister's shrine called ujjaini mahankali temple please go and pacify her by making uh, bonalu offerings to her and uh, people immediately got inspired and in hundreds they went to the ujjaini mahankali temple which is very close to that uh, malana shrine which is now located it is a very famous place there in the rp road of uh, second yes. uh in the tujani mahankali temple they made the offerings uh actually that neem tree and the navel stone still are preserved inside the well constructed tujani uh, mahankali temple there uh, this happens all over india the natural uh, forms like trees and all that which existed before the construction of the temple are preserved after the construction of the temple also uh, that happens in the ujjaini mahankali temple also so they offered to that navel stone and uh, then later came the statue of ujjaini mahankali later it was constructed uh, it was uh, sculpted by very good sculpt sculptors from rajasthan uh, in white marble it was built and it was brought from rajasthan and installed in that temple and all that that's a later history but in 1868 what happened is inscribed there there is an inscription there near secunderabad near the ujjaini mahankali temple an inscription still lies there which describes this whole episode uh, all the developments there and you have many other inscriptions in the twin cities of hyderabad and secunderabad for example at the usmania hospital campus 
there is an urdu inscription which describes this episode of plague and uh, volunteers uh, and a gratitude expressed for the volunteers during the plague and all that so uh, and if you talk to the participants during the bonalu also all the senior participants elderly old aged participants if you ask them why you are performing usual typical repeated responses there was a pilak and kattara these are the telangana words pilakku is the telangana modification for plague and gattara is the telangana modification for cholera uh, so they say that uh, there was a pilakku and gattara and uh, uh, we started appeasing the goddess uh, because repeated pilakku and gattara were coming in uh, our area and the, that's how this bonalu festival started Uh, that is still there in their uh, memory uh, and uh, the whole formula of the ritual is a week long uh, formula on the previous saturday to the bonalu ghatam happens and uh, on uh, the day before uh, the saturday next saturday the goddess is readied on the on the sunday these uh, food is offered and on the monday there is these tiffins palahara uh, la uh, ballu and on the night uh, of the sunday you have that poli uh, challadam the blood soaked rice is uh, sprinkled all around the neighborhood that is why the word telugu word polimera has come mera is border the uh, mera where poli is sprinkled is called polimera uh, of the neighborhood so all the, and there is uh, there, there is a a uh, particular community uh, among the dalits called bindla uh, they are the ritual specialists for offering animal sacrifices uh, for conducting this uh, poli uh, during the night and all that so, so it does does that happen even now animal sacrifice yes yes it, uh, uh, though officially there is a law against animal sacrifice uh in reality animal sacrifice takes place uh, but uh, in just in terms of uh, the smooth uh, this is probably one example of uh, uh, both uh, vedic and folk culture coming together and unifying into uh, one single thing i mean it, essentially it started off as a folk response to an epidemic and then it became a mahankali temple and then you have these uh, the rajasthani marble and all that so effectively then of course prohits the evil brahmins also came into the picture and uh, so it's just a fascinating thing of both cultures seamlessly mixing together yes that's a very interesting development what happens is we can call classicalization of a folk temple and uh, during the and there's no pushback there's no pushback right i mean is there absolutely absolutely so what what people talk about there's no that, that's the point i'm trying to make i mean it's just a seamless integration of uh, two cultures into into, into something common exactly well, what happens is uh, actually in my interviews during my field work uh, i in a very provocative fashion uh, i used to ask the folk communities uh, non brahmanical folk communities which participate in these uh, folk rituals uh, typically uh, and ask them why do you involve these brahmins into these temples why do you bring them because they don't belong to you they are not part of your tradition and uh, most of the responses were uh, why are you so jealous of our temple why are you uh, thinking that our temple should not develop to the extent of a brahmin coming and offering his worship Offer. uh he uh, concerned does the puja in a more elaborate fashion in a methodical fashion in the way it has to be done he knows the method and uh, he is so kind to come to this place and offer all this why are you unnecessarily bringing this conflict uh was the response to me uh and uh, and on that side also on the temple priest side also if i ask the priest why you are coming to this place uh, this is uh, not part of the vedic tradition and all that 
usually the priest's response is uh, who said that it is not part of the vedic tradition uh, the same goddess is called devi and we have a whole devi bhagavatam and uh, all these uh, epidemic responses uh, all these things are de described in detail in devi bhagavatam and uh, i uh, do devi worship at my house uh, i know all the devi mantras uh, i know that she is in the local form in a very native form in a folk form in this temple my only hesitation in not coming to this temple earlier was that there is an animal sacrifice performed here which i cannot bear uh, but uh, when the uh, participants of the temple promised to me that uh, they would push the animal sacrifice place away from uh, the actual uh, shrine uh, a little farther and they do not perform it in front of my eyes i said it's okay you okay. i'm okay with your animal sacrifice uh, you doing animal sacrifice you being a non vegetarian you being uh, taking the prasadam from the animal sacrifice is not a problem for me it's only my personal Uh, taste. It's only my personal attitude that I'm not able to bear the look of an animal being cut in front of me and all that. So you can do it somewhere else and uh, 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 come here and do the remaining part of the ritual here and all that. That's not a problem. So uh, what is the genesis? Sorry. Uh, yeah. uh, just uh, just I'm curious about because uh, after uh, Telangana was formed. we had a, a very big revival of uh, batkamma festival uh, and 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 part of the dasara celebrations that whole thing is is just a fantastic revival that uh, that has happened in the last uh, 10 years but uh, the the very name batkamma uh, uh, what's the genesis of that i mean right now it's celebrated in as a celebration of bounty bountiness probably but uh, it it sounds to me that it, it the genesis could be uh, something uh, from a from a epidemic uh, also would, would thank you very much uh, for bringing this up uh, uh, i wanted to talk about this see epidemic aspect of the goddess is uh, one side of the coin and exactly the opposite side of the coin of the mother goddess is the fertility side uh batukamma is a fertility god fertility uh the very name batuku is life so batukamma is a uh, fertility goddess uh the legend goes that she uh, was the uh highly uh, beloved uh, looked after well sister of the uh, brothers and uh, uh she was harassed by uh, her sisters in law and uh, uh, she dies and then the brothers identify that she was living in the form of a flower tree and she talks through those flowers to the, to her brothers uh, and all that so these narratives uh, actually uh, uh, inherently they encapsulate in them the idea of flowers being the goddess right. so she is the form of flowers and uh, uh, the batukamma uh, installations that you see during the batukamma festival are all heaps of flowers flowers uh, the towers made up of flowers there and as you can understand flower is the fertility portion of a tree uh, and there is an identification between human woman and flower that is why typically these uh, festivals are women festivals and if you see the batukamma dance it is uh, in the form of a circular dance and if you watch the dance from a distance and a wide angle camera if you apply you can see that there is a, a design of a flower uh, closing and opening closing and opening during the dance so the uh, dance configuration itself uh, is in the form of a flower and uh, the feminine movements in the dance and everything is feminine there it's a typical uh, uh, feminine festival uh, celebrating the fertility ability the potential for fertility or the power of fertility which has been looked at as a supernatural power 
possessed by the earth, by the trees in the form of flowers, by women among humans, and all that. So that fertility, there are worldwide cultures of fertility. Batakama is one of them, and you have Gobemma festival there, and Gorbi festival of Gujarat uh, is also the fertility festival there. The Gorbi dance is a cognate dance of this Batakama dance, and all that. So the fertility side is the just the opposite side. So the mother nature, when she is happy, when she is pleased, gives you crops, gives you prosperity, gives you wealth. She is Lakshmi. Bhatkama is also called as Lakshmi. Uh, in the songs of Bhatkama, you find expressions uh, such as all such lines are found as part of this uh, Bhatakamma songs. She is Sri Lakshmi, Gauramma uh, also. So she is a prosperity giver. It's a celebration of crop prosperity. Uh, Bhatakamma festival comes as part of one of the crop seasons of Telangana. Uh, but now it's uh, it's celebrated as a part of Dasara, right? Uh, one of the days. No, no, it's just a coincidence that uh, Dasara festival comes at that time. Uh, okay. Uh, but uh, there is no genetic connection between Dasara festival and Bhatkama festival. The uh, uh, coincidence of calendar for Bhatkama and Dasara festival is just a coincidence. I see. Uh, the Dasara calendar is a Sharannavaratri calendar. Uh, what we call Dasara is in fact two different festivals falling uh, one after the other. Sharannavaratri is the first nine days. The Dasara festival is the Vijayadashmi festival. Uh, but they are falling one after the other so it looks as though it's a 10-day festival. Uh, but this festival, Bhatakana festival, uh, ends before uh, that festival. So it, it almost coincides, uh, coincides with uh, Dasara, but uh, it, it has no link with uh, Dasara. Okay. So the, the question is that uh, now, uh, so we, we will see an emergence of uh, covid uh, yeah. uh, that, that's the That's the question. That uh, will uh, will yeah, Telangana or will Telugu state? Sorry. Uh, what they are going to call it? COVID or Corona or on TV? Uh, corona Thali. Corona Thali is one uh, option. Corona Thali. Corona. COVID Amma is one option. Uh, COVID Amma or what they call? Uh, they, most of these English words uh, they change their form when they go into the rural vocabulary. Uh, uh, a minister on the TV screen was asking the villagers, uh, why, why are you taking all these cases? Why these masks and all that? Just to tease them. Uh, and the response from them was, uh, uh, sir, we are told that some karna has happened. Uh, so their uh, modification of the word was karna. Uh, yeah. So probably if, if that stands, they might call her karnamma. Uh, or any other name, we, we have to wait and see what uh, uh, linguistic form it is going to take. But uh, it can uh, certainly be expected that today the whole rural folk, particularly of South India, is looking at what is happening here as in the form of pandemic. They don't probably know that it's a pandemic uh, for them. It's an epidemic like any other epidemic that affected their villages in the past. Uh, so their view uh, definitely is that it is again uh, nature's anger. Nature. We have uh, uh, done something wrong to the nature. Uh, she is angry with that and she is expressing her anger in the form of this uh, pandemic. Uh, and uh, coincidentally, all the environmentalists are also uh, looking at uh, this pandemic as nature's anger. anger. Uh, they are also looking at uh, this as uh, a, a reaction of nature to all the anti-environmentalist activities that we conducted. Uh, 
and the pro nature changes that are taking place today the rivers getting cleaned uh, more birds coming in and uh, trees blossoming and many other pro nature developments that we are able to see today environmentalists are saying see this is why nature has done that she wanted uh, a break she uh, she just wanted to relax and come back uh, that is why she did this so this the urban educated uh, environmentalist uh, understanding we can see that in a very intuitive uh, rural romantic uh, nature worshiping nature enjoying uh, way in the rural people it always rural. existed for millennia it existed and uh, their uh, nature loving attitude nature friendly attitude uh, was not in such a discursive logical scientific uh, theoretical way but in a very intuitive Thank emotional you. form the same attitude existed in them and that is what has been articulated in the form of providing a shrine to her uh, mother nature to the village ecosystem uh, and talking to her uh, i get amazed uh, when i go to my field works uh, the amount of difference between our logical scientific mind and the village mindset once what happened is during my field works uh, usually in our field works uh, we pretend innocence so that we get more information from our uh, informants uh, so uh, to a dekali person who belongs to a dalit subcaste uh, who is a priestly a dalit priestly community which offers uh, worship at these shrines he was taking me to the temple and i was saying uh, she showed me and uh, a neem tree and she sa he said this is pochamma and uh, he showed the, the navel stone and said uh, he is the brother navel stone he is the brother of she the pochamma tree then i said oh you want to say that uh, pochamma the woman is sitting on the tree and the male uh, whom you are calling navel stone is sitting on the navel stone he got very angry with me and he started shouting at me he said you educated people are nonsensical <laughs> never understand um, he said you educated people i don't know what you mean i was telling you that that ninji uh, is pocham she is pocham and you say that she is sitting on her then i said no 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 okay okay i'm sorry and uh, so you say that uh, Uh, you are looking at the neem tree as pochamma then he said what is this as uh, she is <laughs> she is pochamma and then i said i'm not able to see uh, then he said that is your problem that is the problem you are getting because of your so called education why did you get educated that is why you are not able to see her that is the point that they are able to see it even now they are able to interact with her uh, they are getting possessed uh, they just get into the emotional outburst uh, in the form of that uh, spirit position they speak in voices uh, they for them it all exists there the mother nature exists there the village ecosystem exists there they talk to her uh the, the the way they talk to her we are not able to see we we try to bring freud we we try to bring everything psychopathology they oh, that's a trance that's a schizophrenia that's a multiple personality that is a split personality he is uh, going into some other personality at that time and all kinds of educated nonsense we try to bring into that but uh, in reality what's happening is they are living the nature they are yeah. living the mother nature what the contemporary urban educated environmentalist is saying in a logical form uh, is happening in an emotional form in them and they are interacting with her so now for example during measles or uh, chicken pox when a child is uh, having that uh, problem 
they quarantine the child correct and during the quarantine stage they say the child is with the mother the mother is talking to her talking to the child and they let us give them privacy see quarantine is a privacy between mother corona and the quarantined quarantine patient corona patient do we look at it that way we we take pity on the corona patient and say uh, that oh he is suffering he is suffering he uh, we uh, quarantine him because of that but the poke uh, attitude towards that is he is under the care of mother corona she is just angry but uh, okay it will all be all right uh, after some time they have a positive attitude but if something goes wrong also they say she liked him and she took him away <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so everything is taken in a very positive attitude uh, so for them epidemics and pandemics and all that they uh, they don't fight with them we in all our educated uh, conversations we are using the word battle war fighting uh, we will win there will be victory <laughs> all kinds of thing but for them it is just her anger all mothers get angry she is also angry now mothers will get pulled down after all they are mothers in sanskrit they say kuputro jayeta vachidapi kumata na bhavati there can be a bad son but there can never be a bad mother uh though this is articulated in sanskrit like this they say it in their own local languages and they say they can never be a bad mother she is uh, corona mother has come uh, she is angry with us uh, she will be cooled down once she is cooled down everything will be all right she may be visiting us now and then in future also but whenever uh, she visits let us cool her down and let us live with her she we are going to live with our mother corona thank you sir thank you so much that was a very fascinating insights into uh, hindu folk uh, traditions uh, hindu folk religious responses to uh, epidemics and pandemics uh, it's very very fascinating um, yeah let us let us look for, look for the corona thali or the covid amma uh, soon and mother corona mother corona covid yeah thank you so much and uh, uh, thank you uh, uh, thank you to the viewers we, what we are looking at is uh, we are uh, planning to host a conference on uh, folk traditions folk culture folklore uh, uh, soon whenever we can uh, do that but as a prelude to that conference uh, we will be having conversations um, on on uh, folk traditions uh, Uh, we will be also inviting speakers to have conversations with Dr. Nagaraj. Uh, probably uh, in about ten days' time, we will be having uh, a conversation on uh, folk songs in and around Telangana. We will be having Tatwalu uh, and folk songs, so we'll be having conversation there. So do look forward uh, to please uh, uh, continue to engage with us on this uh, very interesting topic on folk traditions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nagaraj.